Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Thank you for your patience. I, um, alhamdulillah, I'm so excited to have us all together again for, for this celebration of actually, um, in fact, another, it was 25 donors. So now um, th this is, um, the, the update is actually that we're at 179. So we only need 21 more for another Kronalika <laughs> after this. So we're always already thinking to the next one, but inshallah, we are excited to be here. I know I'm super excited just to be here for another another session. Um, just very quickly, I wanted to um, thank everybody for their kind messages. Before we got started, we were talking a little bit about Luchi, um, our dog, and I just wanted to, our dog passed away for those who might not know, and I like to take every opportunity possible just to tell people about how wonderful dogs are, because it's always shocking to me that, you know, in, in this time that Muslims are still like you know, as a group, people who are the most anti-dog. And I think that's just so wrong and so um, shameful. And, you know, Luchi, I think a lot of you have seen Luchi or maybe have met Luchi in person. Um, this little white Maltese, you know, he we, we made him famous through our little prayer video. And um, just a really sweet, you know, constant loving companion. And I, you know, and he was actually really instrumental in helping a lot of people that we met, a lot of Muslims that we met overcome their fear of dogs. Because a lot of times people come in and, you know, they know we have a lot of dogs. And I always have to ask people, are you scared? And, you know, I, I usually, um, you know, put the big ones somewhere else so they don't interact. And we have like certain dog-free zones in our house. But the, um, our dog-free zone was our living room, which is Lucci's area. And so people were never too scared of Lucci. And so, um, you know, Lucci would just kind of be very, very charming and coming up. And, you know, and of course, people would never mind, you know, petting him. And then eventually they would like, you know, pick him up and put him on his lap and or on their laps and then want to take him home. So it was just always like planting the seed, which I thought was very powerful as part of our educational process. But so, um, you know, if, if anyone is still, you know, not... Um, you know, not open to the idea of having a dog. I just want to plant that seed and tell you that it's it's a life-changing experience to have animals in your home, especially for your children. And they're just such beautiful examples of, you know, actually how to be more human because, you know, they're, they're so unique and so special and they have such rich personalities and, you know, very specific preferences and likes and dislikes. And, you know, we just have endless stories about each of our dogs. And like right now, um, you know, we have a, a white German shepherd named Luda who for some reason we cannot figure out, but there's something going on where he is really terrified. He was like, saw something scary in the backyard and for days has just been like frightened and, and living out of our bathroom. So, you know, even things like that, they're very sensitive and very, you know, like emotional. And even like Luda is one of these very sensitive dogs that the second he hears like either the professor's voice get a little bit elevated or a little bit excited, um, he'll come and literally like jump on the professor and be like pawing him to calm him down. It's okay. It's okay. Like he's just there to comfort, you know, all of us. And so it's just an incredible experience. Um, and I think it's such an eye opening um you know, view into the beauty, I mean, just the generosity of the of God in creating these creatures that, you know, literally you could you could trip over them, you know, every time you walk past and they would not even be upset. You know, they're just still there to love you and, and you know, and be your companion. So anyway, um, I hope that, um, you know, if you haven't had the opportunity that you'll give yourself that gift of having a dog or a cat, um, so or any animal, actually. So, and thank you so much. I got a lot of really, really lovely condolence notes. And that was, you know, really, really touching because we were all really sad. We were up all night and we were, it was just feeling the, the loss was, was hard. I mean, I think, 
the hardest thing also, I mean, every time you experience a death, um, it's, it's so painful. Like the whole experience of death is so final and, you know, uh, um, you're never prepared and it's always hard for the people who are left behind. And I think the thing that really struck me the most, um, aside from the reminder was just the feeling that, you know, life goes by so quickly and, you know, Lucci would be here hanging out in the living room and I'd be like rushing by one way, rushing by another. And I would just look at Lucci and think to myself, okay, when I have a little bit of time, I'll sit down with Lucci. I'll, you know, give him some attention. And of course, life is so busy that you oftentimes never get around to it. And so, you know, you just do a quick pat here and keep running, quick pat there, keep, you know, and, and keep running. And then, like, when he was gone, I mean, I didn't really get a chance to say goodbye. Like, I knew he wasn't feeling well, but I didn't think he was on the verge of death. And so when he literally, we finished dinner, and I, like, you know, fell asleep on the couch for a little bit, and then Mita woke me up, and he was gone. And and then at that moment, I took the time to sit and pet his head. But the irony just killed me, because it's like, oh, now you have time to spend time with him and pet his head. Now that he's gone, you know, you didn't do this when you were when he was just here and you sort of took his presence for granted and you kept on with the busyness of your life and so I really tried to reflect on that you know um because I think that you know it's one one thing for a dog but also another thing for the people in your life and you know and taking the time to you know slow down and really spend that time with people that you love before they're gone and then now it's easy to justify carving out time to go to someone's funeral or to beg for forgiveness because they're gone. But at that point, it's too late. So, um, you know, we, as I mentioned, we have another dog that we just found out has cancer. And it's a different situation because, um, you know, I mean, he, she could go at any time, but it's, it's like a growth that, you know, will require some time to overtake her body, but it could end up happening very fast. But with that, it's like we have pre-warning that she's gone. And so it's, you know, for me, I have to, again, remind myself, slow down, spend some time, you know, because she's not, now we know she's not going to be here for a really long time. So anyway, it's just like, I always feel that these sorts of circumstances are just a reminder of, you know, the, how quickly time passes and how easily it is to lose people that you love. Um, so that was, that was my lesson from, from the passing of Lucci. Um, then the other, the other thing that I thought I would mention, um, that happened this week that was unusual, I guess, is, um, if anyone watched the chutbah yesterday, I actually did the call to prayer and I just thought I would take the moment to comment, um, I'm very grateful for our community. We have some good white liars, people who sent me messages and said how beautiful it was. <laughs> I know, you know, I'm not a singer, obviously. I'm, my performances have been always limited to the car and the shower. So, you know, I mean, I, I sound wonderful in my own head and when I'm by myself. But it's a very different experience when you actually get up and do it, you know, and, and do it like, you know, you're live streaming and you, you have people like your family sitting next to you. And so people were very, very generous with their comments about how beautiful it was. And so I'm very grateful for that. But um, I, I also know that it wasn't that great. So <laughs> but it was a good I was like thinking, at least I have, you know, a baseline to improve from. And inshallah, I'm going to keep working at it. But it was important for a couple of reasons um, that I had mentioned to some people in some of my coffee and questions that um, I, I started taking voice lessons over the summer because Mito started taking voice lessons and it was something that we decided that we would share. And um, and then I told my, my voice teacher, I, you know, I would really love to do the call to prayer 
because I felt like, you know, it's one thing to learn how to sing and it's kind of like, uh, you know, like, okay, you entertain your ego by trying to make yourself sound better. And, you know, what are you going to do perform? You know, I'm obviously I'm not going to become a singer, but I thought that in order, you know, to do something that I've always loved um, and turn it into something actually meaningful, like, you know, a call to prayer, which is something, you know, for God and for, you know, also for the cause of women's voices, you know, and elevating women's voices, because what was really shocking to me through this process is well, the first step is I wanted to find examples of women doing the call to prayer because I thought, OK, if I'm going to learn, I want to see what's already out there. So I was really shocked to know when I went on YouTube and whatever, I literally could not find any women doing the call to prayer. So I reached out to my Facebook friend, um, Medina Javed, who is um, very instrumental in trying to uplift female voices for chronic recitation. So she's a, um, I had not met her before, but just, you know, was an admirer. Um, she's in Scotland. And so I reached out to her and I told her what I was trying to do. And she was able to um, get find like a very beautiful, like singular call to prayer that was done by a woman named Mai Kamal. And she is a, a, an opera singer in Cairo, but she now is also a popular singer. So she does jazz and other things, but she's the daughter of a very famous singer in Egypt. And so um, it was a very, very beautiful call to prayer. And so I, you know, and the professor told me, you know, usually when people are learning call to prayer, you just emulate, you know, the, the reciters that you find that you really like. So I thought, okay, if I can emulate this, I would be very happy to do that. And so I shared it with my voice teacher, who's not, not a Muslim, but she was totally fascinated with this whole idea. And she got her husband to transcribe the music. And then she did all this, you know, like background research. And he, and he actually did all this research and listened to everything that this woman did. So it became a whole like educational experience, even for my, my voice teacher. Um, and then um, so I started to, to learn it. And then um, the professor, interestingly, was telling me, um, so then he, the professor got involved and he started telling me some of the background of call to prayer. And he actually even did some um, to record for me. And he was like, oh, you know, there are different styles and all of this sort of stuff. So it became a whole educational experience. So um, then as I was learning it last week, um, the professor and I were on a call with a couple of friends from Australia. And he said, oh, yeah, Grace is going to do it next week. And I'm like, oh, I am. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so it was then they were really excited. So I said, OK, fine, I'm going to I'm going to have to do this. And, you know, it was important. I mean, just also as an example of, you know, it's it's never it's never too late to to pursue something that you love, even if you think it's really hard and it's scary and it requires some bravery. So I wanted to do that. Um, and, you know, and then the professor said that he, he was telling our friends that when I was interested in doing the call to prayer, he went back and he revisited the jurisprudence on like women's voices being aura and why it was that, you know, women didn't do the call to prayer. And then he shared with all of us um, in that call that actually, you know, the jurisprudence is very weak about women, you know, not being able to, you know, sing. Obviously, we know we have beautiful chronic reciters like Om Kalsum and, you know, all of that. But um, that the jurisprudence is weak and that it really was an issue of, of patriarchy, why women didn't do call to prayer. So even more so, it was like, OK, this is really an important issue. Um, so but the best part of yesterday um, doing the call to prayer, I was super, super nervous. So obviously I couldn't breathe and I don't already even know how to breathe properly. So I'm going to work on that. But the best part was in the chutbah, and I had asked the professor, I'm like, okay, if I do this, can you please just say something, you know? And, and he actually, in the second chutbah, at the very beginning, he said, 
Okay, so some of you are going to think that this is haram. You know, you heard this woman's voice doing the first aven, and that's my wife. And sure, I'll talk to you about it. But first, fix Jerusalem and fix the Muslim, you know, issue in China and fix this and fix that. He's like, you know, quite frankly, I'm sick and tired of this issue. If you care more about a woman's voice being aura than all the major priorities confronting us as Muslims, you need to go and get medical attention and, you know, like run, rush, go and get mental help. So that was the best part of my call to prayer is having the professor share that. So anyway, if you have if you haven't watched it, it was really quite satisfying and lovely. And it was a really wonderful chutzpah yesterday, too. So that's my little plug for the chutzpah. Um, so that that's it. And I'm just really happy to um, be with all of you and looking forward to another amazing session. So thank you. Where's, uh... Oh, and where's Binti? He wants to know. Where is Jenna? Where's Jenna? <laughs> where's Cheyenne? Cheyenne's not there. Where's Cheyenne? <laughs> oh, here's Binti. <laughs> okay. Where's Cheyenne? Oh, you're picking <laughs> out food. Who needs food? <laughs> if you have Diet Coke. Uh, where's Joe? Joe had many apologies. Many apologies. He and his wife are on a happy anniversary, happy birthday trip, and he, they're driving back, so he couldn't make it. He was really heartbroken, and he promised this would be the only one he would ever miss. Oh... Uh, Oh, I'm like talking to you and off. he's on an anniversary and birthday tour with his wife and they're driving back and he was really, really heartbroken and sad and said this will be the only one he ever misses. Oh, anniversary. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the the toils of love. Inshallah, today we will do Surah Al-Ahqaf. Um, as usual, you know, I, I think of there are many possibilities before each halakha, and I just pray and whatever comes to be in prayer then is um, ends up being the selection 
Before we start Surah Al-Akhaf, just let me quickly remind you or underscore that the, the study of the Quran is not a theoretical abstract study. If the Quran, if, if studying the Quran doesn't translate into concrete changes in your life, then you're not getting from the Quran what you should be getting. Um, I've heard that there there's some groups that have already, or a group or more, I don't, I'm not sure, that has already formed, uh, per, per my advice last week, or last uh, halaqa, um, for, for everyone that hears me, whether they're on the screen or, or not, working to translate what you learn from the Quran into a, a living practice and a paradigm shift in your life is, um, is critical. Um, and whether you are good at doing it by yourself, if you're not good at holding yourself accountable, if you have a tendency to towards laziness, uh, or a tendency towards obstructionism, where you obstruct yourself through depression or or uh, distraction, or you know, people obstruct themselves in in, in so many different ways. Then uh, forming or creating some way to be held accountable, or at least where you, it can help you hold yourself accountable uh, is, is a very good idea. And consistently monitoring how what you've learned has, what type of changes it induced within you is the only way that you can live the Quran and the only way that this knowledge um, becomes meaningful. The other thing I want to underscore is that from so many sources and so many reasons, we know that pursuit of knowledge is a blessed thing. And we have so many reports about how if you are in the pursuit of learning, that you are blessed, there is a barakah that comes straight from Allah, and that you know whether you have physical visitations of angels or 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 some other form of blessing, but it is all it is a blessing, and the most blessed of all forms of learning is the the learning of the Quran, and. Uh, you know, some of you, when you, you during the halakha, I've noticed that there's some of you who uh, shed tears and and they're so touched at the moment that you're learning this material that you know you tear up or and don't think that this is simply a coincidence. Every time you are learning the Quran and your heart is touched, it's a message from Allah. Allah is speaking to you. And the normal thing, in the same way that we could be sitting and we could listen to a recitation of the Quran and it moves us, 
But as soon as we turn off the Quran or we put down the Quran, um, we we are subject to all types of shayateen, the, shay- the shaitan of al-hawa, the, the inner shaitan, the shaitan that comes from your own whims, uh, or um, external shayateen, external demons, whichever. I mean, sometimes your inner shaitan is even worse than the external shaitan. Sometimes that is far more dangerous than any possible external demon that you could encounter. Um, even the Prophet ﷺ has moments in which the Prophet ﷺ is receiving revelation. And these are moments are moments of revelation. But once that these moments are over, the Prophet ﷺ has to rely on his own faculties, his own abilities. Um All the prophets who were examples to us are like that. And so even the more so asked you. So it is perfectly normal. It is perfectly normal that you are in an elevated state at the time you, you learn the Quran. But that elevated state is not maintained beyond that. But therein is the challenge. That's exactly the challenge. Uh, the, the challenge is that comes after the halakha as you go back to your mundane lives. And then the whisperings start, regardless of whatever the source of these whisperings are, but the whisperings start that understate and um, the understate and um, distance that moment of closeness that you felt with Allah. While the moments of closeness are a gift from the divine, are a communication from the divine, exactly like when you're receiving revelation, except of course, you know, you're not a, you're not a prophet. But One of the most common errors that you find people committing is to allow themselves to doubt the moments of clarity and the moments of revelation that they received. So, you know, you you feel very emotional at one point, you feel very close to Allah, and then you go back to mundane life, and then you forget, and then you start doubting, you know, whether... The, 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 this moment of clarity that you had was truly for divine or truly authentic or whether you're just an emotional person or a person that has some form of longing or, um, you know, all the million different ways that we, we uh, tend to undermine our own beauty and our own husn, whatever is beautiful within us. You know, it's very much like moments of charity that you get. How many times do we human beings, you know, the idea pops in our mind that we should give and give generously to some needy people or some needy cause, but then we go back to our lives and that idea seems so distant and the rational for it seems so distant 
and the logic or the, the, the emotive point that moved you at one point seems so distant. All of that is from shaitan. And the moment of clarity is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Figure out a way. Figure out a way to remember the moments of clarity. You know, whether you write them down, whether, you know, whether you, you record yourself talking about them and consistently understand that they are madad from Allah. They are inspiration from Allah. This is Allah reaching to you. Um, and, and try to rekindle them in your heart consistently and persistently. And stand up to yourself when you slip away or when these moments slip away. Hold yourself accountable uh, before you're held to account. And don't be an ungrateful human being because every time Allah gifts you a moment of clarity and you go back to your confusion, you drift back to your confusion, you're being ungrateful. And how many times can you be ungrateful before you totally lose Allah's blessings and you're abandoned to your own devices? We human beings are, while we are, while we are capable of enormous amount of beauty in these moments when our beauty shine as human beings, whether in so many different ways, um, but it, it is our tendency toward lethargy and indolence and um, lack of vigilance that sort of constantly pulls us away from the center, um, from the center of warmth, the center of enlightenment, the center of certitude, the center of tranquility, the center of um, uh, repose and balance. Um, and that's, by the way, and that's precisely what the word shaitan means. Uh, shaitan is what breaks the norm. Shaitan is what yashuttu an shay or what... Um, if the decenters you, grabs you away, uh, pulls you away from um, the state that you should be in. So even we say, you know, shatta. Shatta means, well, in colloquial it means something hot, but like hot food. But in but in in classical, shat. Is if you go off course, that's a shotot. Or if you go completely wrong, or if you go out of orbit, that's a shotot. Uh, or if you become an outlier, that's a shotot. Um, and all of that is related to the word shaitan. I can't emphasize this enough. 
because Allah extends a hand to us all the time in moments of clarity, in moments of intense feeling, in moments of intense piety, in tears that well up in our eyes. When, when someone passes away, we might feel very close to Allah. When we have a disaster that befalls us, we might feel very close to Allah. When we want something we might that we care about strongly, we might cl feel close to Allah. Uh, when we hear something that touches our heart, we might feel close to Allah. But then we constantly drift away. And that shatat is what you have to guard against. And that you must see these moments as moments of blessing and as um, acts of grace by Allah extending a hand towards us. And if you constantly keep turning that hand down, um, you know, then you're, you're, you're just, um, uh, you're gambling, uh, you know, because you every time you do that, you take a gamble, and the gamble is that Allah will not extend that hand to you anymore. And how often can you do that? I don't know. No one can tell you, you know. But um, you take a gamble, and it's a serious gamble because your gambling was your own soul. Okay. Surah Al-Ahqaf. With this introduction, uh, you'll see how this introduction connects to Surah Al-Ahqaf. First, Surah Al-Ahqaf is among the surah known as al-hawamim and as we said before al-hawamim are the surahs that start with the letters ha-mim we'll talk a little bit about that um, it is a late Mecca surah so it was revealed in Mecca uh, the the vast majority of sources uh, agree that it is a late Meccan revelation. Uh, there is some reports say that it was revealed uh, right after Surah Al-Jinn. Uh, some reports say no that it was revealed. Uh, right after Surah Al-Jathiyah. We, of course, know that in the, the way the Qur'an is organized, Al-Ahqaf uh, is right next to Al-Jathiyah. Uh, depending on which report, we know that Surah Al-Ahqaf is either was among the in, in the, in terms of its numerical order, it's either in the 60s or in the 70s. So it's it's either, you know, 60-something, 60 66 probably. Um, 
or it's or I didn't write down 71 but in either 66 or 70 something anyway um, but as we, you'll see why this is relevant uh, the fact that it is a late Mecca revelation and as we know and as I emphasized and underscored several times that the the surahs that are revealed in the late Mecca period uh, have a, a particular character. They, they are preparing Muslims to a significant paradigm shift in their life. And that is the, the Hijra and what will come after the Hijra, a whole series of challenges um, that starts in a monumental way with, with the Hijra and the sacrifices that the Hijra will entail, the migration to Medina, but uh, also the, the, the challenges of defending and maintaining uh, the Muslim city-state in Medina. And there, there is a part of Surah Al-Ahqaf that actually um, very directly addresses a particular event in a very fascinating way um, in the late Mecca period. As far as we know, the Surah Al-Ahqaf was, was revealed after Khadija had passed away, uh, but before the Hijra, clearly before the Hijra to, um, to Medina. Okay. Organizationally, Al-Ahqaf is fascinating because it is among the surahs that literally has a, um, the character of a conversation, nearly like a like a, a comforting conversation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet It has six main parts, although the way that it transitions from one part to another um, is fascinating, and I'll, I'll comment on it um, in due course. Uh, we can divide the surah nearly to, to, to six main parts. So it starts out with, like a lot of the surah, um, especially the hawamim and, and some other surahs, it starts out with a declaration and a discourse on uh, revelation and iman. Um, 
revelation and iman, sort of establishing the foundations, very much like Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim uh, at the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha. Uh, revelation and Iman. But then it takes us to the to a, a, a discourse on Moses which we are by now familiar with the the, the commentary on past nations past legacies, but segues from the discourse on Moses. So, so far we, we're familiar with the style, Revelation and Iman, past prophets, but then segues into a discourse on parents, which is fascinating, and we'll talk about that. From Moses to parents. And if you're paying paying attention, you of course immediately say, "Well, why did it go from talking about Moses and the Torah to parents, um, and then from parents, as if continuing its discourse about past prophets, it talks about the prophet Hud, who was among the Arab prophets." Um, non-biblical prophets and, and Arab prophets in Arabia sent to Ad to Qawm Ad, um, a, a, a Yemeni, um, a, a group of uh, a, a people in Hadramaut or in, in Yemen. From after continuing on with talking about past prophets, particularly the prophet Hud, it segues into jinn. It tells us something about jinn. And then closes with God's omnipotence, um, God's omnipotence as part of the final counsel to the prophet wasallam. So if again, if you're paying attention, then you immediately notice that, well, there are two significant segues here. The segue into so the, the, the surah starts out with revelation, that's one, Moses and the Torah, which falls in the category of past nations and past prophets, that's two. But then you have the segue as to parents, but then returns back to talking about prophets, particularly Hud, but then segues into jinn, so that's four, and finally closes with God's omnipotence and um, God's omnipotence and the last testament or the last counsel to the Prophet and that's five or, or, or six depending on how you count. Why the segues into 
parents and the segue into jinn. And again, if you're studying the Quran carefully, you have to ask these questions and you have to ask what, how do they un inform our understanding of the surah and of the, what Allah is telling us through the surah and what Allah wants us to understand from the surah. First, let me just make a quick comment about Hamim before moving on. Um, I, I told you in the past that there, there's some who said that Hamim is part of Ar-Rahman or the name Ar-Rahman and that Suwar Al-Hawamim um, what might unify them is that they inform our, our understanding of Ar-Rahman in some special and particular way. Uh, the reason I say might is that if there were, for instance, if there were students who wanted to build upon the legacy of my tafsir or the legacy of my work, they might take everything that they learned from me and start, for instance, analyzing al-hawamim and see if there's something that unites al-hawamim other than the fact that they begin with ha'mim. But that's that. That's the way that you again you develop or you build upon a scholar's work is that you go from where they left, and you develop things further. That's something that I have not had time to do, um, and like all matters of serious study, not superficial, the type of superficial um, nonsense that goes on among so many people these days. Uh, that would be a serious engagement that would take very serious time um, to complete a study like that, like what what what, are, what unites the Hawamim together. But anyway, so other than than the than the argument that Hamim is part of Rahman, I think I forgot to mention in the past that also um, some scholars have said that Hamim. Which, which is a, a view that didn't is, is not well known in the modern age, but that said that Hamim is actually not supposed to be pronounced as two letters, Ha and Mim, but it's supposed to be pronounced as a word, Hamma. Hamma um, uh, is an actual word. Or for those of you that know Arabic, you recognize, for instance, the word himam. Uh, himam, which means trials and or or difficult circumstance, or even the word humma, um, fever, um, which comes from that same root, hamama or hamma, um, and they said that instead of it being read as ha-mim, that it should be read hamma, and then it would mean 
serve as a, it would serve as a reminder um, sorry struck that not as a reminder but as an exhortation to action if you start something in, by saying hamma you are alerting people that this requires action from of them so for instance if you say hamma amrullah it, it means the the hum uh, amrullah, the judgment of God, is close. It's pressing. It's eminent. Uh, or if you say, hum al amr, it means now this affair has become heated and very pressing. So anyway, you should just be aware that. Some scholars said that Hamim or all the Hawamim Sur start with Hamim not because these letters belong to the word of Rahman, but because these Sur are alerting us to something eminent and sort of getting your attention to something really serious. Uh, is as if saying, pay careful attention, because I'm going to be telling you about something that is um, of overwhelming importance, and something that is so important it can't wait. Um, by the way, so for instance, the word humma, fever, the reason it was called humma is because it was believed to bring a person closer to death. So the reason we, we call a fever humma um, is that, okay, you know, now you're ill, now you have a fever, pay, pay attention because you might be closer to death. So, I mean, it's, it's an... It, it, I have to, the reason I tell you about this is that it, this perspective has influenced my approach to a lot of the Hawamim, and it definitely interest, influenced my approach to Al-Ahqaf, um, as I'll explain in a second. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So, if if we assume that Hama and Allahu Alam, you know, whether Hamim or Hama, both could be right, obviously. But if we assume that Hama is is drawing to our attention to something that is critical and eminent. A point to be delivered at that critical junction of the development of the Islamic message uh, as the Quran is preparing Muslims for what will come and the type of human being that they must become to handle the challenges that will unfold from the hijrah to the jihad 
that is going to be required of Muslims uh, in order to survive as a as a people on the world stage and so on. So what what is what is that critical message? Well, first we immediately like a lot of the Hawamim, like all the Hawamim actually, we have a declaration, and a declaration that, like Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, grabs our attention and establishes a foundation for all that will come. Tanzilu kitabi min Allah al-Aziz al-Hakim. A revelation. A book from Allah Allah Al-Aziz Aziz the 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 all powerful the almighty the singular because Al-Aziz is also the singular. Al-Hakim, the most wise. This is the book. This is the foundation. But here, we start, unlike some of the other surahs I've done, I want to start with the name of the surah, Al-Ahqaf. Why is the surah called Al-Ahqaf. And what are Al-Ahqaf? And of all the the things that this surah could have been um, described as, why in particular Al-Ahqaf? Let me tell you at the begin at the very beginning that the dhikr ayah or the ayah to dhikr that I focused on and Allahu Alam is in ayah thirteen. Inna ladina qalu Rabbun Allah. ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ This is a critical ayah in the entire Islamic tradition. Those who say our Lord is Allah, our God is Allah, ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا then they embrace the straight path. There is no fear for them and no sadness will befall them. A supplication that is extremely powerful. If you repeat this ayah as dhikr, you'll see its power. You'll feel its influence and its impact upon you. Again, 
innalladhina qalu rabbunallah Allah is our Lord thumma istaqamu thumma istaqamu it's not just that they embraced the straight path but they fell in they embraced that principle as an anchor in their life and because they embraced that principle as an anchor in their life they made everything follow from that foundation from these roots الذين قالوا ربنا الله ثم استقاموا everything became centered around that belief that declaration it is not incidental to their life it is not marginal to their life it is not something that complements or simply completes their life it is actually the foundation for everything that follows or could follow what about these people these people are anchored in a sense a deep sense of tranquility a deep sense of repose a stability la khawfun alayhim wala hum yahzanun stability as if they become firm solid for everything that follows if i am correct and this ayah is ayat dhikr the key to unlocking surah al-ahqaf <coughs> then see what follows we know that the word ahqaf occurs in the surah and it occurs in describing the people of ad the people of the prophet ad as they are about to meet their destruction So I'm going to I'm going to skip ahead and then come back to the beginning of the surah but I'm going to skip ahead to to these critical verses. Verse 21 Wazkur akha adin iz anzara qaumahu bil ahqafi wa qad khalat an-nuzur من بين يديه ومن خلفه الا تعبدوا الا الله اني اخاف عليكم عذابا عذاب يوم عظيم 
recall the brother of Ad. The brother of Ad is the prophet Hud, salam. At the Ahqaf, that critical word, who the Quran comments, who was preceded by other prophets, but who is reminding his own people, telling them to anchor themselves in that belief in the one and only God. Now, we know from the surah, of course, that they reject the warning and the message of the Prophet, and they see the coming of the formation of clouds in the sky. This is the the Qawm Hud, or the the um, uh, the people that the Prophet Hud salam, they see a formation or clouds in the sky, and when they see the this formation in the sky, they actually rejoice. They think that this is the coming of rainfall. And rainfall is good for their agriculture and good for their economy and good good for making money, basically. And they are happy about it. So, فَلَمَّا رَأْوَمُهُ عَارِضًا مُسْتَقْبِلَ أَوْدِيَتِهِمْ قَالُوا هَذَا عَارِضٌ مُمْطِرِنَا بَلْ هُوَ مَسْتَعْجَلْتُمْ بِهِ but in fact, these cloud formations that they rejoiced about and they thought were good omen and something good coming to them turned out to be their own destruction. These clouds didn't turn out to be a source of goodness, but in fact was their doom and their destruction. So let us go back now to the word Ahqaf. There are many different reports about what the word Ahqaf is referring to. But the majority said that Ahqaf is a reference to a region in Yemen that was rather famous for its sand dunes and its but they're not just sand dunes, but they're rather sand dunes that are unstable and they they um, have an, uh, the, the, the sand particles um, are of a nature that they shift with the wind easily and that you also that you can literally sink in. So they're dangerous sand dunes. They're, on the one hand, they could serve as protection from invaders because of their instability 
because of their size, but on the other hand, they're not solid grounds to stand on. You could easily sink in and perish. But the most interesting thing is that any the attempt to connect Al-Ahqaf to any particular geographic location is speculative at best. There is no region, specific region, known as the region of Ahqaf. It is a descriptive term to um, a type of topography. Now consider this. On the one hand, you have those who declare Rabbi Allah, those who acknowledge Allah is their Lord and center their life upon that acknowledgement and that faith. And they have no reason to fear. Contrast that to people who live among Ahqaf, unstable grounds that in fact are so unstable that they can act like quicksand. You can get stuck in them and perish or you can actually just sink in them like quicksand and perish. Contrast between these two. The critical thing here is that these people engaged in a delusion. They believed that something is good but it turned out to be their utter destruction. What did they base their belief that these clouds in the skies are good for them? What did they base that on? Well, they based it on not believing their prophet. On giving the lie to the prophet and on their own rational assessments and faculties. So you prophet, you're a liar. This is not our doom. Our rational faculties tell us that when we see these clouds forming and rain coming, it's going to be good for us. If they would have believed the prophet, they would have understood the true nature of things. So take a step back. Between those contrasts, between those who say, Rabbi Allah, ثم استقاموا, those who anchor themselves 
in Allah. And so they have no reason to fear or in fact be sad. And the fate of these people, what is it that these people did that could be educational and illustrative illustrative for us? What is it that these people did that could be educational and illustrative for us? Well, consider the following. These, as, as we'll see, these people, in fact, the Quran itself tell us, tells us وَلَقَدْ مَكَّنَّاهُمْ فِيمَا إِنْ مَكَّنَّاكُمْ فِيهِ وَجَعَلْنَا لَهُمْ سَمْعًا وَأَبْصَارًا وَأَفْئِذَةً فَمَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُمْ سَمْعُهُمْ وَلَا أَبْصَارُهُمْ وَلَا أَفْئِذَتُهُمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ إِذْ كَانُوا يَشْحَدُونَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَحَاقَ بِهِمْ مَا كَانُوا بِهِ يَسْتَهْزِئُونَ So these are not stupid people. These are actually very rational people and powerful people. Allah has given them resources. The, the, the surah I just read is number uh, 26. God has given them hearing and sight and hearts and these are always allusions to ability, to human ability, the rational faculties. But they availed them nothing. At the end, they didn't help them see the truth of things. So it is not that they are people that are whimsical. They're not people that engage in wishful thinking. They are people that base their beliefs on what we would consider rational reasoning. But the problem is, is that like so many ideas, so many dreams, so many plans, so many things that we do as human beings are precisely like ahqaf. They appear solid. They appear like something that could, in fact, protect us. And we make assessments about what is good. And we have hopes and dreams about what is good. But when we leave out Allah... Rather than Rabbuna Allah Thummastakamu, rather anchoring the foundation of our life in our faith and in Allah and in Kitab al Aziz, in this book, ultimately we are standing on quicksand. We think we're standing on solid foundation. 
But the foundation upon which we are standing makes us think that something is good that ultimately proves to be our destruction. In many ways, Surat Al-Ahqaf It is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, I know as human beings, relying on your senses and on your rational faculties, on your assessment of the way that you read the empirical world, the way that you read these clouds forming in the sky, the way that you read the empirical world, the way that you would like to believe that you're reading the empirical world, you are going to reach conclusions about good and bad. But mind you, know that without anchoring yourself, in fact being your entire foundation, the entire ground upon which you stand, is your belief in Allah and your will and capacity to form your entire life, to shape that life on the foundation of belief in Allah, then you are standing on unstable grounds. And because you're standing on unstable grounds, you are not among those people you are not among these people who can aspire to a life without fear, a life without anxiety. Take a step back. What is the most characteristic thing about true Iman? The most characteristic thing about true Iman is trust in Allah. Because you trust in Allah, you live a stable life. It is not that your world is any less chaotic than the world that other people live in. It, the world remains as chaotic as, as it is. It is the way that you process this world. It is your perception of this world that makes you immune to the chaos of the world. So the most characteristic thing about Iman is tranquility, repose, stability. Because you trust in Allah, the chaos of the world does not scare you and does not destabilize you. You are tranquil and solid and stable because of the way that you perceive and process this world. 
you are not standing on Ahqaf. You are standing on Salat al-Mustaqim. You're not standing on Ahqaf. You're standing on Salat al-Mustaqim. And if you stand on Salat al-Mustaqim, again, Allah tells us, La khawfun alayhim wa la hum yahzanun then you experience no fear and no anxiety. If you are a mu'min and you experience constant anxiety, is this a weakness in your faith? Yes, it is a weakness in your faith. It means your faith needs work. Because if you truly trust in Allah, there is no place for that anxiety. Whatever Allah gives you is welcome and acceptable. And you see this world, you put this world in its place. You understand life on this earth for what it is. It is simply a transitory stage. It is a place where you are tested, but the real life is the hereafter. That's the essence of faith. You are doing everything you can in this life for the next life. Now, that's the leap of faith. That's the leap of faith. Because so many people that say we believe in Allah, the part that they have the hardest time grasping is resurrection. And if resurrection is compared to this life, then this life becomes insignificant in proportion. It is not that you quit this life. It is not that you, you know, become disengaged from this life because that's not what the Prophet ﷺ did. But what Whatever you do in this life is kept in perspective. And that keeping things in perspective anchors you and stabilizes you. So the most characteristic thing about Iman, when you see a true, if you think of the people that were, you know, epitomized Iman for you in life, if you think of maybe your grandparents or, you know, people who of, of real iman that you admired. And the thing that you always find about them is that they're very tranquil people. They're like solid ground. You know, you might be scared, anxious about things, but you come to them and, and, they, and they exude a sense of tranquility and confidence and stability. And that is لا خوف عليهم ولا يحزنون. They have no reason to fear because they're with Allah. But the people of Ahqaf look at they could become happy and not just happy but ecstatic with good news but it all turns out to be a mirage at the end. It's, it's for nothing. Now, the good news translated to our lives, translated to our lives, 
could be so many things, right? It could be a career that you engage in and you put all your trust in that career. It could be a relationship that you enter in and you put all your trust in this relationship. It could be an ideology, a system of belief, a set of ideas. You know, a lot of times when I think of friends that turned Marxist and remained Marxist or that became capitalist, staunch capitalists, you know, they live and die for capitalism or they live and die for Marxism. But Allah's promise in Al-Ahqaf is like telling you, you know what, these are like the, these clouds that prove to be your destruction. But at the end, if you are not anchored in the principles of faith, this is why even, I mean, the, the, I'm taking this a step further and to, to just demonstrate what I'm saying. When you see Muslims, for instance, think of politics, and instead of thinking of the ethical principles, they think of calculations of benefit and harm. If you rely on calculations of benefit of harms without the foundations of the ethics of Iman, then that's like al-Ahqaf. You're standing on nothing. Thin air. You're not starting with what is required of me as a Muslim. What are the principles? Look, for instance, we know that in China there is a holocaust going on. Millions of Muslims are being exterminated. If you talk to so many Muslims about the fact that Muslim countries have not come to the support of their fellow Muslims to condemn the Holocaust, they tell you, well, you know, these are economic reasons, they're financial reasons, they're political reasons. You know, China is a very strong economic power and we need trade with China and we need commerce with China and we need to do business with China. You know what? That's the Ahqaf. Because you're not starting from ethics and principles about what duty you owe an oppressed people. No, you, you are taking a man out of the equation altogether and you're saying, let's measure it by cost and benefit, by maslaha. Similarly is what we see with Palestine. Why did the Emirat normalize relations with Israel? They're looking at the bottom line, how much, how many dollars they're going to make. Why did Bahrain normalize relations with Israel? Bottom line. The world of ethics and principle is very different. That's why when I see someone who claims Iman is playing politics, then I say you have nothing to do with Iman anymore. As far as I'm concerned, you're just like someone without Iman. Because you calculate cost and benefit empirically 
instead of basing yourself on foundations and principles. Think of every injustice that was committed by someone who supposedly fears God. Allah tells us you cannot put someone to death. You cannot spill the blood of a human being. You cannot kill a human being without specific reasons. But think of how many people have been killed in the name of political expedience. And what remains of Iman? So at the broad level, it's true. And at the individual level, it's also true. Think of how many of us sacrificed our Iman for a career or for a set of dreams or for personal feelings or for whims. Well, you know, I don't feel it. If you are living on the principle then the principles discipline your feelings. You grab your feelings by the neck and say, feelings, you're not the boss. The boss are my principles. This is why Surah Al-Ahqaf is so important. And this is why it was prepping Muslims for what's going to come. If you live by your feelings and your speculative ideas, you're not going to build a civilization. They would have never built Medina. They would have never built the Muslim nation. They would have never built the civilization. Islam would have died from the beginning. Do you want to be like the pioneers that built Islam? Or do you want to be like the loser Muslims of today? Because it is remarkable. I mean, the idea of Aridun Mumtiruna. Oh, good shears. We don't, we don't care what this prophet says. Get lost. We, we are seeing you know, clouds and they're going to bring rain and we're going to have good agriculture and we're going to make money and we're going to be happy. And they were celebrating. These people were celebrating, but it turned out to be the instrument of their doom. It's what destroyed them. And what does Surah Al-Ahqaf tell us about these people? They lived on unstable grounds. Let it percolate. Let it settle in your heart. Because I'll tell you, for me, the nights of dhikr with qalu rabbuna allah thumma istaqamu they said allah is my lord when it terminates and penetrates your heart and you say okay allah i am finally finally absorbing what it means to be yours yours now 
I want to be among those that live a principled life. Same thing. A principled life. Not a life where my whims and desires drive me. Not a life in which my fears and anxieties lead me. Not a life in which the speculative ideas of the philosophy I read, the new, you know, when you read a lot of philosophy, your brain is constantly popping. But it is the zikr of Summa Staqamu that says, you know, God, I've read so much philosophy, so much philosophy, I'm confused. Every time I finish a new book, I think, oh, wow, that's cool. But at the end, what am I? Who am I? I am tired of seeing mirages. I am tired of seeing, you know, again, translate to our modern Muslim world. I'm tired of seeing, you know, the Bush era. And we're, we, we, we suddenly seeing an invasion of a Muslim country as a good thing. Before the Bush era, years ago, where I don't know what era where we saw the loss of Palestine and you had all these Muslims philosophizing about, well, you know, Palestinians maybe don't really, or not a people. But then we get to even the invasion of Iraq and, and then the Obama era where bombing Muslims is, is okay and, and extrajudicial killings of Muslims it's, and we philosophize and we speculate and then the Trump era where suddenly even the trashing of Islam can be philosophized as okay. All these Muslims that like Trump although he's a sworn enemy of Islam and now people are talking about or oh, maybe we should have a Biden era where Islamophobia is wrong but forget the Palestinians. Because that, that's, the, that's the new thing among a lot of American Muslims. Whether at a public level or a personal level, it's the same thing. Is your life anchored on Allah and an istiqama? What is istiqama? A principled life. A principled life. Not a life of whim and desire and speculation, but principles. Or do you have a different leader? Whether that leader is, you know, bin Salman or Sisi or Trump or Biden or, or yourself, because many of us, you know, reject all these leaders as false, but then we accept ourselves as a leader are you really not a false leader? If your leader is your women desires, are you happy with that? Do you think you're going to be among la khawfun alayhim wa la with yourself as the leader? Okay. Having taken you here, where we started with the end of what Al-Ahqaf is, I'm going to go back now and walk you through the surah. 
So you understand how the entire surah powerfully delivers this message. So, we said Hamim. Allahu Alam, Allah knows best, but if it is pay attention, Tanzilu Kitabi min Allah al Aziz al Hakim. This is the book of wisdom. This is where your istiqamah is going to come from. This is where your principles are going to come from. Are you willing to accept that, or do you want to remain losers in life? ما خلقنا السماوات والأرض وما بينهما إلا بالحق وأجل مسمى والذين كفروا عما أنذروا معرضون The heavens and the earth were created in حق meaning do you see the heavens and the earth? They have a purpose. It is a purposeful creation. That is why so many scholars said that those who say we don't understand the point of creation lack iman. A purposeful creation is an article of faith. Even if you don't understand the wisdom from Allah creating us and ultimately holding us to account, but you understand, if you, if you believe in Allah, then you believe when Allah tells you this creation was engineered with a purpose. Interestingly, you find in many tafsir, um, like if you want, like Tabarsi, for instance, um, tell you when Allah says that Allah based creation on al-haq, haq means not just truth, but it also means justice. So Tabarsi, for instance, says, that an article of faith is that when Allah tells you I've created creation in haq, that Allah is telling you, if you want to pursue haq, then you have to pursue the establishment of justice among people. So those Muslims who say, for instance, oh, you know, it's okay with Islam if there's injustice. You, uh, the priority is to obey the ruler, not to, not to establish justice. They would be, they're undermining the foundation of haqq. They're emptying Islam of his soul or emptying the purpose of creation of a soul. 
Because the purpose of creation is that so human beings will pursue justice. Then if you come and say, well, you know, you have to obey an unjust ruler, then what is the point? Then why are we even here? So, this creation is purposeful and intended. It's not a coincidence, it's not happenstance. قُلْ أَرْأَيْتُمْ مَا تَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ أَرُونِي مَاذَا خَلَقُوا مِنَ الْأَرْضِ أَمْ لَهُمْ شِرْكٌ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ اِئْتُونِي بِكِتَابٍ مِنْ قَبْلِ هَذَا أَوْ أَثَرَةٍ مِنْ عِلْمٍ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ The translation first, so Um, say have you considered that which you call upon apart from God show me that which they have created of the earth or do they have a share in the heavens bring me a book before this or some vestige of knowledge if you are truthful two important points here قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُمْ مَا تَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ Allah is telling us, show me or tell me those that you worship other than God. Are they true gods? So this is, this is one thing I'm going to comment on. The other thing I'm going to comment on is this interesting um, or a vestige of knowledge because that's very fa fascinating. A vestige of knowledge. So the first thing about تدعونا من دون الله of course, the, the, the classical understanding or the, 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 the most obvious understanding is, you know, worshipping uh, um, idols. And Allah is saying, well, you know, those idols you, that you worship. But as numerous commentators point out, that human beings worship other than God all types of things. Not not necessarily just idols, but any idol. You know that show American Idol? You know? So, you know, you could worship American Idol, but more dangerously, you could worship money. You could worship yourself. You could become your own idol. And so, when... Allah is warning us, leading us to the point of warning us about the ahqaf, the unstable grounds. Note, first starts with telling you, you want the foundation? The foundation is in this book. And 
the foundation is knowing that you exist for a reason. You're not, you weren't created by accident or coincidence. Allah fully intends for you to be on earth and alive. So take your life seriously. Don't waste your life because you were created with a purpose and intention. Don't waste your life. A lot of, you know, I get a lot of questions. Why, why is suicide so haram? Well, in part because of this. Is that Allah intended for you to be in this life? Don't take that lightly. You know, suicide, if not the result of com compelling illness, it's basically telling Allah, I've given up on you because I don't really think I should be on this earth. I don't believe that I exist for a reason. Okay. Second, think about who your idol is. Even if you don't worship Islam, be brave in asking yourself, okay, so all of us psychologically, I'm just reading a book now called The Belief of the Crowds. Very interesting. That, you know, all of us think like herds. You know, a lot of the belief systems we have are the product of herd thinking. We actually think like herds. We think, we, 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 we tell ourselves we're so independent and autonomous and very cool. But in fact, we're very uncool. And a lot of our ideas are the result of herd thinking. But, so is your idol the herd? Is it the fashionable ideas? You know, is your idol MBS or CC? Is your idol yourself, your desires? You know, consumption. A lot of people, their idol is consuming. A lot of people, if, you know, they don't have exactly the right couch or the right car or the right drapes, they're miserable. They're utterly miserable. Is that your idol? Okay, the second element Bring me a book or a vestige of knowledge or or atharatan min ilmin. Now, there are in the books of Tafsir, there is a, a lot of discussion is it ithratan min ilmin or atharatan min ilmin, but we, we don't need to, to pause that. The, the critical thing, a lot of this debate, by the way, has to do with, is this a reference, a condemnation in Quranic discourse to a specific form of knowledge that at the time people engaged in. So it's either saying, bring proof from a book, Tuni Bikitab, a revealed book that can support your position, or 
or asaratan min ilmin or isratan min ilmin or there, there, in, at that time, there was, um, what do you call them, um, people who would engage in, what do you call that when you, uh, not, uh, like people who read the skies, the stars, the sand. Soothsayers. Oh, yes, soothsayers. So there were, if, so numerous, so many soothsayers that would read the the stars as the basis of of knowledge, or lines in the sand. There was a or stones, the configuration of stones on a sand background. So it's all these, you know, kitab symbolic for knowledge that comes from a systematic, rational documentation or all these fanciful ways of knowing that existed at the time and so many commentators say well it, it is basically condemning any form of knowledge that is not anchored in this book in the in the rev in the quranic revelation of course, that's possible, and I'm not. I'm not saying that that's. Um, however, I I don't think, as actually many commentators also know, that I don't think it's necessarily limited to a condemnation of soothsaying. But it is, in fact, it asaratan min ilmin could apply to any fashionable way of thinking that human beings engage in. It is as if Allah is saying, you know, I, I know that, because Allah tells us elsewhere in the Quran that, that human beings are, are the most argumentative and speculative of Allah's creation. They have an infinite ability to argue. And as in fact the surah will will will, will come to again, and they, they their ability to contest and argue and debate is endless. But the eloquence in describing that as authoritan min ilmin is that you know it, it's as if all your speculative thinking and all your contestations and all your arguments are. It's like saying pseudo-knowledge. It's not intellectualism, but pseudo-intellectualism. It is not knowledge, but pseudo-knowledge. I know that you human being thinks that these ideas are serious. But in fact, you human beings, as the, 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 the surah itself is leading to, is but you human beings, when, when you don't anchor your certitude in this book and in this iman, you are, again, with all your fancy ideas and all your pseudo-intellectualism and all your pseudo-knowledge and all, you, you, you're on ahqaf. You are on stable grounds. And you, you read things as good or bad 
based on false premises. So, and who can possibly be more astray? Those who call upon things other than Allah. You know, and see how you can set your imagination free as to all the things that we call upon. We call, you know, whether you call upon a system of ideas that are inherited that we call custom and tradition or you call upon the stars and and horoscope or you call upon you know wishing upon a candle and birthday cakes or you call upon degrees that you acquire after hard study and hard careers or you call upon your bosses at work or you call upon MBS and MBZ and CC and Trump or whatever you call upon. Ultimately, they're all false. You want to be among those who do not fear and will not be beset by sadness. You want to be those will learn to call upon no one but God. It's much harder to do than just to say. But if you do it, that's precisely why Iman is equated with tranquility and repose. Okay. Then Surah Al-Ahqaf takes us to some of the contestations and argumentativeness that confronts the Prophet Muhammad after warning us upon warning us about our own natures. So then here, addressing what has unfolded and continues to unfold in Mecca, when the Meccans hear the Quran, they respond, هذا ساحر مبين أم يقولون افتراه قل إن افتريته فلا تملكون لي من الله شيئا وهو أعلم بما تفيضون فيه كفى به شهيدا بيني وبينكم وهو الغفور الرحيم قل ما كنت بدعا من الرسل وما أدري ما يفعل بي ولا بكم إن أتبع إلا ما يوحى إلي وما أنا إلا نذير مبين So, they respond to the Prophet ﷺ and say, this is but a magician. 
Now, it's interesting because why the accusation of being a magician directed at the Prophet? Because of the power of the Quran, the Meccans could not in in variety of contestations and arguments, but they ultimately knew that this is an an eloquent and beautiful book. That it wasn't enough to say that Muhammad is making it up, but that in their minds and in their context, it was a form of magic because it magically captured the hearts and minds of so many people at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But notice here, the response of the, the something that, by the way, is, will seem underscored in the Quran as a repeated theme. When Allah tells the Prophet ﷺ, what your response should be, what your reaction should be, what your um, uh, um, not not rhetorical response, but but even more, your spiritual and your uh, inner response. Tell them what you know to be true. Listen, if I made it up, if I am lying, lying and attributing something to God that doesn't come from God is such a serious offense, you are effectively accusing me of being so insolent of the, to have the gall to lie about revelation. Because if I am a liar, you're not going to be able to help me when I stand before God. Among the gravest sins is to lie and say that something came from God and it didn't. So, you know, when you see some people say, Allah inspired this, or I prayed the stikhara and this came to me. If it's, if it's not true, that's a very serious sin. If it's not true. But, what is the ultimate response? What is the ultimate response? It is enough that Allah is my witness. Whether you believe me or not, Allah is my witness that I am not lying. Again, constructing the character of istiqamah. Sirat al-Mustaqeem. Constructing the Sirat al-Mustaqeem. You as a Muslim, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be called a liar. A lot of people are not, are, are not going to admire you. Are going to even think you're an idiot. You're stupid. You're backwards. 
if you have true iman, it is enough that your conscience is clear before Allah. So it's taking you from a world in which you respond to human beings. The source of your anxiety is, am I disappointing this person? Am I impressing this person? Am I good with this person? To a world where you say, Kafa billahi shahida. It is enough that Allah is my witness. A remarkable source of empowerment, but more importantly, a remarkable source of solid foundation. You're not standing on al-ahqaf, on standing on quicksand, because you don't care. Ultimately, whether people believe you or not, as long as your conscience is clear with Allah. Again, the source of tranquility and repose for people with true Iman. Why are those people so solid? When you think of your grandparents who might were very pious people, why are they so solid in who they are? Because fundamentally, kafa billahi shahida. Allah is enough as a witness. Whether you believe me or anyone else anyone else believes it doesn't matter and the response of the prophet ali sallallahu wasallam ma kuntu bid'an min ar-rusul i am not a novelty i am simply another this is ayah number 9 I am not a novelty. I am just like the other prophets that came before, each of them carrying the same message time and time again, anchoring you upon a paradigm shift of Iman. And it is not about me as a prophet, but about your relationship to Allah. Because I don't know what's going to be done with you or me, meaning the boss is Allah, and I only follow a revelation. Okay. At this point, the Quran, this is verse 10, when it refers to someone from Bani Israel, someone from the people of Israel, a Jew, or that You Meccans, because of your arrogance, you look down upon this message. But someone with the knowledge of, when you say that, that someone with the knowledge of the Torah and its tradition 
testified that this is the truth from God. What is this verse referring to? Here, there are reports that say it is referring to Abdullah bin Salam. Abdullah bin Salam was a Jew living in Medina, a very influential rabbi, a very prominent rabbi in Medina, and who converted to Islam and who relying on a study of Deuteronomy I don't remember I mean the the it's it's in the first 20 verses of Deuteronomy he says Deuteronomy tells us that Muhammad is coming and that this is the awaited prophet that that the Torah or Deuteronomy in particular told us about and so Abdullah bin Salam converts to Islam and has a very famous argument with his people saying, you know, if, if you study your own scriptures, you know that we should follow this prophet. The problem with this tradition and tying it to this Surah Al-Ahqaf in particular is that we know that Surah Al-Ahqaf is Meccan. It was revealed in Mecca. While this incident with Abdullah bin Salam took place in Medina years later. So it's unlikely that this revelation is talking about the incident with Abdullah bin Salam. And as I said, I'm talking about ayah number 10. Um, the, um, so... It is, so what's the alternative? The alternative is that it is referring to an unnamed set of people that knew that this is, that Muhammad is the awaited prophet foretold by Moses and foretold by Jesus, and that's a big su a subject to how Jesus tells his followers that there will come a prophet who is um, who brings the same message of Moses and my own message, uh, and when that prophet comes, follow him, and so on. That that there are a group of people who recognize this to be the truth and told Quraysh, because we know from narratives that in fact at the time of the, at the time of the prophet, there were a debate going on about an awaited prophet. And there were several people from Arabia, not necessarily from Quraysh, but from Arabia that nominated themselves as the awaited prophets. They said, we are the awaited prophets. I don't remember their names right now, but I, you know, I'm very familiar with their stories and so on. A group of Jewish scholars sided with Muhammad against these alternative nominees and said, you don't bear 
the you don't fulfill what we know to be the signs of prophethood, and they sided with Muhammad. Quraysh was very upset about this incident and said, then he has put a spell upon you because it cannot be that he is the awaited prophet. So it is more likely that that's what, far more likely in my opinion, that that's what this, this verse is referring to. And it is basically telling the Qurayshis, the Meccans at the time, like so many people, it is your own ego that prevents you from reading the signs. You are hampered by your own ego. Even when you see these people who come and tell you this is the awaited prophet, what is your response? You say, well, you know, it can't be that we are in error. It can't be that we should change. If it was the truth, it can't be that they would recognize it before us. لو كان خيرا ما سبقونا إليه. This is verse eleven. وإذا لم يهتدوا به فسيقولون هذا إفكن قديم. Here is a if you if you study the language, the language is fascinating because it yes it's addressing the Qurayshis, but it's also the way the, the grammar tenses apply in perpetuity, indefinitely, to people that engage in the same conduct. And what is that conduct that people engage in? So many of the... So much of the reason, or what often stands as an obstacle for true iman, what often stands as an obstacle is the unfamiliarity of a principled and ethical life demanded by istikama. It is that we, we are raised in a certain way. And because we're raised in a certain way, we think in a certain way. We're often raised, you know, do good in school, excel in your careers, get your degrees. And most of us, this path of istiqama, this path that is not the path of ahqaf, the path of solid ground, is unfamiliar. Egotistically, we presume that what we are raised with is presumptively the truth. And it is Iman that has to prove itself to us. But think how stupid and idiotic that is. You are exactly like the people of Ahqaf. 
you exist, you stand on very shaky grounds, and what so much in your spirit and your heart and your intellect tells you is the truth. And these moments of glimpses of enlightenment that you feel when when, when you listen to the Quran or when sometimes you get in prayer and so on, and that feeling of repose and tranquility that you enjoy, but then goes away. But yet, what, what prevents you from embracing the path of tranquility? The path of non-anxiety, the path of no fear. Are your egotistical habits just the way I am? My feelings. You know, okay, then it's your choice. But be brave enough to say, I choose to stand on shaky grounds. I choose to stand on quicksand. I choose my fate in the hereafter. Because when you confront it, it's too late. Look at this prayer.